to look at it as, as proof texts for what we should do for our life today. Uh, so if we have a problem with our marriage, we want to look for a proof text in the scripture. Uh, we have a problem with work, we want to look for proof texts in scripture. You could find plenty of books in any bookstore that follow the same sort of approach. Uh, Psalm 27 is one of those psalms. Um, but Jesus warned us about this in John chapter 5. He told the Pharisees, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. In this series, I'm looking at how the scripture testifies of Christ. And Psalm 127 is no exception. This psalm gave rise to what's known now as the quiverful movement, that it is God's will for uh, men and women to marry young and to have as many children as possible. Uh, taken from verse number 3 of Psalm 127, the children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. I would like to look at this psalm today in a new light, a different light, uh, not new, uh, recovered, I guess, uh, a recovered light as the scripture itself looks at this uh, to talk about Christ himself. The first thing we see in this psalm is that it's called a song of ascents. Uh, this was written for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. As pilgrims made their way towards Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. And in Jerusalem, no matter or in Israel, no matter where you were, uh, if you were headed towards Jerusalem, you were going up. And so this is a song of going up, going up to Jerusalem, the city of the Lord. In Jerusalem, of course, you could find the palace of the heirs of the throne of David. In Jerusalem, right next to the palace would be the temple of Solomon, where God met with his people. Uh, and throughout the Psalms, we see the temple of God, where God meets with his people, and the heir to the throne of David linked together, as we're going to look at here. It's the next thing we see also that's important in this. It's to Solomon. Uh, so whether the Hebrew there means to Solomon or for Solomon, have Solomon in your head, because this is important to our interpretation of this. Who is Solomon? Solomon was, of course, the son of David, the first son of David. Uh, and Solomon was the fulfillment of this prophecy that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel, the context of this is that David got it into his head to build the temple of the Lord. It was a good idea. Uh, David had a great deal of zeal for the worship of God, uh, which is right and proper. Uh, and so he said, all right, I have rest from all my enemies all around. I have um, everything taken care of. Everything's lined up. I've conquered everything. And now I've got the wealth. I've got the money. I've already built my house. Is it right that Israel is dwelling in houses and at peace when God is dwelling in a tent? At that time, the tent was still uh, where God dwelt with all the tabernacle furnishings that were built by Bezalel hundreds and hundreds of years earlier uh, while they were going through the wilderness. Uh, so David says, I'm going to build a house for God. And he tells Nathan, and Nathan says, that's a great idea. And then Nathan goes home, and David goes home, and they go to bed, and God speaks to Nathan, and he says, give this message to David. And he says to David, will you really build me a house? Are you the one that's going to build a house? And then using a play on words, he tells David, you're not going to build a house for my name. I've never asked anyone to build a house. I am the one planting you. He says this in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel 
and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a tremendous move forward in God's revelation of his redemptive plan. Since the Garden of Eden, God had promised mankind that he would send a redeemer. The seed of the woman would come and restore this kingdom that had been usurped by the prince of the power of the air. The ruler, the prince of darkness, Satan himself, has usurped the kingdom. And God is redeeming us from sin and misery and from the power of the devil. And as Revelation progresses, we know that this seed is going to come through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, all the way down, and now through David. It's going to be the heir to the throne of David. God is using this play on words, on the word house. David, you're not going to build me a building, a house to dwell in, but I will build you a house, a dynasty, the house of David, uh, which will be a dynasty that will go forever and ever, and I will never take it away from you. Uh, this is the promise. Solomon, of course, was the first one to come. Solomon, as David, as God told David, would build the temple for God. Uh, not David. Solomon would build it. But then Solomon would fall into that horrible sin, uh, and uh, the kingdom would be taken away from him uh, in the days of his son Rehoboam, and so the kingdom was divided. We know this. With this in the background, with this promise given to David in the background, pointing to Christ who would come, the house that would be established forever. Now, let's look at Psalm 127. Psalm 127, a song of ascents for Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. Thus he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The first thing that I would look at is the first two verses, talking about the Lord building a house. This is the echo of the promise that was made to David and to Solomon, that it's God that's going to build the house. It's going to build the dynasty. What good does it do for us to take our hold with our hands and go try to build the kingdom of God? Uh, this echoes back to what I said a few weeks ago with the contrast between the Tower of Babel and Abraham. The Tower of Babel had bricks and mortar. Abraham had a promise. And here's that promise repeated. Solomon, unless the Lord builds your house, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to accomplish it. Unless the Lord guards this city, how many watchmen are you going to need? 
This is the point of this. And of course, the application for each household, too, is how are we going to build our household unless the Lord builds it? That's the immediate application. But there's something so much deeper and greater here. If we continue to struggle to overcome our sins and to build this kingdom on this earth, this is the formula for restlessness, for anger, for contention, for strife, for hatred, for destruction. Because it's never enough. We're never strong enough. We never have enough resources. We never have enough power. The key to sleeping at night is to remember, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. So we rest on God's promise. Back to the canon of scripture. When we talk about this psalm in the context of this promise made to David, and in the context of God's plan of redemption, we see this as a part of this plan. This is not intended to stand by itself. It's certainly not intended to be an order for a man to marry a young girl and pump out as many kids as possible. That misses the point entirely. This is a psalm of ascent to be sung by pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem, and they're reminded of Solomon. And once again, here is the promise from Psalm 89 that's given to the sons of David with more revelation, speaking of Christ himself. At this point in redemptive history, by the time we get to Psalm 89, where uh, the line of David has been taken captive, they're in prison in Babylon, they've disappeared for all, uh, for all that the eyes could see, the eyes of the flesh. But God repeats his promise in Psalm 89, and he says this in verse 24, My faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, that is with David, the heir. And in my name his horn, his power, shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea, and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever." And my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Notice now here there's a seed promised to this heir to the throne of David. That's the culmination of the prophecy from the garden. It's an echo of the promise made to Abraham. In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And as Paul tells us, this seed is Christ. But here, the seed is promised to Christ. So pilgrims are heading to Jerusalem singing this song from Solomon. And being reminded that it is God that makes a promise. It is God that gives us sleep. It is God that builds the kingdom. It is God that's going to restore and bring about the promise. Now let's look at the next section, which seems like it abruptly switches. Where in the next section, all of a sudden he's saying in verse 3, Behold, children are an inheritance of the Lord. What does this have to do with that? Of course, in the Old Covenant, uh, the more kids the king had, the more secure his throne was. Um, And we know in the Old Covenant that having many children was a tremendous blessing from God. Even now, Scripture is clear from the beginning to end that children are a blessing from God. God gives us uh, our children. It is God that creates life in the womb. But that is not primarily what this psalm is about. 
This psalm is about an inheritance. In verse 3, he speaks of children as the inheritance of the Lord. Uh, the New King James translates this an inheritance from the Lord. The Old King James translates it an inheritance of the Lord. In Hebrew, the word is of, but it could mean that either the inheritance belongs to the Lord, or it could mean that the inheritance is from the Lord as a source. Translators are almost equally divided. I think the point here is that the children are God's inheritance. They belong to God. This echoes the promise that Moses uses in the book of Deuteronomy. When God delivers Israel out of Egypt, he calls them my inheritance. For example, Deuteronomy 4. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his people an inheritance as you are this day. Again, in Deuteronomy 9, Yet they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. And then Solomon, here's Solomon again, repeating this in his great prayer at the dedication of the temple. For they are your people. I'm sorry, First Kings 8, verse 51 and 53. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. And then again he says, For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. It's far more common to speak of our children as being, uh, to speak of the nation of Israel as being God's inheritance, rather than a reward that somehow God gives faithful parents. You never see that concept in Scripture. You see it as God's inheritance. And then, let's take this a step further. In Psalm 2, a fascinating psalm, the inheritance here is now switched and given to David's son. Similarly to Psalm 89. In Psalm 2 it says, God is speaking to the anointed one, David's son, and saying, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And then he closes the psalm saying this, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This son, well, first of all, from our perspective 2,000 years after Christ, this is common language when speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he is a descendant of David according to the flesh, uh, Romans chapter 1. We also know that he is the Son of God with power. Um, uh, and and uh, everything you can say about God can say about uh, the Son. He's the second person of the eternal trinity, uh, of uh, begotten, not made, as the scripture tells us. But when this psalm was written in Psalm 2, this was new information. That when you say, kiss the Son lest he be angry, that's common language for a king. Make peace with the king. If he's mad at you, you're in trouble. Make peace with him. The great king is coming. But then he says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Which in the language of a faithful Israelite would have been a horrible thing to say about a man. In fact, throughout the Psalms, throughout scriptures, the prophets warn, cursed is everyone who puts their trust in a prince, puts their trust in the legs of a man, puts their trust in the powers of a man. We put our trust in God, because back to Psalm 127, unless he builds the house, we labor in vain. So here, this people, this inheritance, the people of God, 
belong to God himself and the anointed one, the heir to the throne of David, who is going to come in some way and receive his people as a reward. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This seed will be a reward. Christ comes. He takes upon himself the flesh of David, the form of a servant, Philippians tells us, and says was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. And the book of Acts tells us that he asks the Father for his inheritance. And what is his inheritance? It's every nation. I will grant you the nations for your inheritance. Not just Israel, but all of the nations. This is echoed in Hebrews chapter 2. It says in verse 13, And again, I will put my trust in him. There's that echo that this son of David, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is far more than just a man. He's one that we put our trust in. And then what does he say? Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Think about that for a moment. He's echoing what Isaiah is saying. And Isaiah is not referring to his physical seed. He's referring to those who believe the words of Isaiah. And once again, Isaiah there is a type of Christ, pointing to Christ, who is the one who says, Here am I and the children whom God has given me, meaning all those who put their trust in him. They're the inheritance of God. And so, he says, and continuing in Hebrews, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, the children are his church. They are the inheritance of God. They are the inheritance of Christ. So he shares in our blood that he might redeem us and make us his own, his inheritance, his people, his bride. Now, in the Old Covenant, before Christ came into the world, the people of God were traced through genealogy. It starts almost immediately in Genesis chapter 4, because God said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the world was divided between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, those who believed the promise and those that did not. But God made this promise to Adam, and so the tracking of the seed was incredibly important. And they did it, especially when the promise was given to Abraham, in your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. And every woman remembered this promise. Every faithful woman remembered the promise and longed to be the one bringing the seed who would bring salvation to the world. When I talked about uh, Cain and Abel a few weeks back, I mentioned how Cain was the one that Eve thought was the man from the Lord. Of course, he turned out not to be that one. And the centuries go by. But here's the thing. We can easily mistake that promise of God as an appeal to the power of the flesh. And God will not give his glory to another. In other words, to make this really simple, even though God promised that it would be through the seed of the woman that the promised one would come, don't make the mistake of Abraham. Abraham thought it would be because he could have children. And so he takes Hagar, has Ishmael, 
And Paul makes this contrast in Romans 9. Ishmael is a child of the flesh. Ishmael is what happens when a man and a woman come together and have a baby. Even believing men and women, what do they bring into the world? Another one under the curse of Adam. Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And to remind us of this, that the promise is only going to come when God builds the house, there's a theme of barrenness throughout all of the Old Testament. Sarah is barren, Rebecca is barren, Rachel is barren, Hannah is barren. It's so common that when you read about you're introduced to a new woman, it's almost like, oh yeah, well, she's barren too. (laughs) Because it's so common. And then God miraculously opens the womb and they bring forth a child to remind us that the kingdom and the king comes because God made a promise, not through the flesh. And so on the one hand, the genealogies are given so that we can see God's hand working in the ordinary generation of mankind But barrenness is also given to remind us that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Only the promise can take away sin. And with that in mind, look at what he says in Isaiah 54. He's talking about the church looking forward to Christ coming and saying, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood any more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Jesus Christ came for his bride, for his children, for his seed. So he says, lengthen your cords. Your tent's not going to be big enough. These children are going to possess all the nations of the world, their inheritance. Remember, Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And now the barren are bringing forth and they're filling the whole earth, not with the seed of the flesh, but with the seed of the spirit. Because our maker, our creator is our husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And therefore, sing. Look at, again, that language in Isaiah. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, enlarge the place of your tent. In other words, happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Looking at that psalm again, the word happy in Hebrew is ashri. It's used at the very first word of the psalm, Psalm 1. Happy, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of of the ungodly. This blessed man is Christ and all those that are united to him by faith, and also here, and Christ had no physical children. Did he have children? According to Scripture, he absolutely did. In his obedience, he suffered and died that he might bring many children to glory, Hebrews tells us. And so he says, Behold, here I am, he says to God, I and the the children that you have given me, 
And Psalm 127 says, Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Christ is full of children. The church will spread through the whole earth, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it all ends in Christ. He is the author and finisher of our faith, which is why an amazing thing happens when you get to the New Testament. The New Testament starts with a genealogy from Abraham to Jacob to Jesus, and then it ends. There are no more genealogies after Christ. There's no more, and then Jesus beget and beget and beget because he lives forever. He never died. He is even now reigning on the throne of David forever. He is our high priest forever. We don't need a new one. We don't need a new king. And we certainly don't need to beget tens of children. That's not the, what this psalm is about. This psalm is about the spreading of the gospel through the ends of the earth. This idea of the quiver full of children is tied to the idea of dominionism. It's always the same thing. We have to have all sorts of kids. Kevin DeYoung calls it militant fecundity. Uh, we give birth to a ton of kids so that we can outnumber uh, all the unbelievers and then take over the nation. Well, here's the problem with this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Ask the second, third generations after the quiverful movement. Are all your kids walking with the Lord? All of these people that have been raised in this kind of bondage? All of the women that have been through that pain and sorrow, been sold as child brides? How are they doing now? Do they fit this mold? If what this psalm is talking about is large families, you would think there would be one example of a man who was blessed because he had a ton of kids. But throughout scripture, you see the opposite all the way through. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Jacob had 12 sons. Would you describe his family life as a happy family life? Or was it because of the promise that was hidden in those sons? And so the genealogies end in Christ. He is the one that has fulfilled not only Psalm 127, but also the dominion mandate. When God said in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over all creatures, that Adam failed. That was gone because Adam failed and therefore it was put under a curse until the one comes to whom it belonged, and that was Christ. He is the one that is now conquering and having dominion and plundering the kingdom of Satan. And how is he plundering the kingdom of Satan? He sent out his apostles two by two to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and he said, And I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Through the proclamation of the gospel. And so at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus doesn't say, all authority has been given to me now. Go out, marry young, have a lot of kids. Trace your genealogies. No, he said, all authority is given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always even to the end of the world. It's an amazing thing. 
This psalm, as it's been interpreted by the Quiverful Movement, has led to so much pain and destruction and death because you're seeking to build a kingdom. But without the king, you're seeking to build a kingdom through the ability to have children. And so the widows and the singles are left out as somehow secondary citizens, not nearly as important as the one that has 8 to 10 to 12 kids. The goal is to marry, and they even teach now to get married when you're 16, 17, 18 years old and have lots and lots and lots and lots of kids, and by this we will be taking over the world. That's not what the scripture is about. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh. This is not how God gives his beloved one sleep. It's unless the Lord builds the house, and he builds the house through his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation will never come by the flesh. And thus, after Jesus came into the world and the genealogies ended, there is no command to be fruitful and multiply. There is the command to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. Children are still a blessing of God, but they're never linked to the salvation of the world because Christ has come. The Son has come. And that will always be the gospel. Children are never a reward for good works. That only came to Christ, who alone was obedient unto death. And so the command to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion is fulfilled in Christ. And so we don't build our house by a quiverful. Only God builds the house. The quiver belongs to Christ. He's the one whose church, whose children, whose bride sits at the gates and proclaims the gospel, judgment and justice and the righteousness of God throughout the world through the proclamation of the gospel. And he is the one who builds the kingdom. And only here can we sleep at night. May God bless you and may he give you rest. Amen. Amen.